Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. Today on the show, we have Nick Panos, a co-owner of Seven Mellow Mushroom Restaurants in Atlanta. Mellow Mushroom is a regional franchise that has 200 locations in about 20 or so states and is known for serving higher-end specialty pizza and specialty cocktails. Nick grew up in the restaurant industry with his father, who acquired the family's very first Mellow Mushroom location back in 1995. In our conversation, we get into the weeds of restaurant ownership, specifically how Nick created a six-figure additional profit stream through catering, the forms of recurring revenue he's built through relationships in his market, and why Nick believes that the franchise model is well worth the royalties and franchise fees he pays. I hope you enjoyed the episode. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by The Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek, and Wolfpack Franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. Want to sit back and earn passive income each month? You can actually do this through Franchairs. Invest anywhere from $500 to $500,000 and let the team at Franchairs build, manage, and grow your franchise portfolio. You'll receive a check each month, plus a lump sum when the portfolio sells. Go check them out today and add your name to the waitlist at Franchairs.com. All right, man. So yeah, let's just get into it. I mean, I guess a good starting point, I think, is Mellow Mushroom. It's more of a regional brand, right? With like yeah, 200 locations. Pretty much across. in the Southeast is kind of the, uh, the geographic center, and then it kind of spreads out from there. If someone's listening to this and doesn't have any familiarity with the brand, can you just kind of give a primer on what the concept is? So the concept is kind of a stone-baked pizza where it's your artisanal pizza, right? Your high-end, higher-end craft pizza, and you pair it with higher-end craft cocktails, whether that's your actual cocktails themselves, whether that's a higher-end wine, uh, craft beer. So they're going after the consumer, whether it's someone like you and I who want to go out and just have a nice like lunch, dinner, grab a beer, grab a cocktail, or a family that wants to go out with everyone and there's something on the menu for each person, right? So it kind of caters across uh, the spectrum in terms of what people could want and gives people what they want, if they want pizza, anything like that. Cool, cool. And and so it's pizza, so obviously there's a takeout element kind of oh, yeah. embedded into it. But, you know, I looked online, the restaurants look pretty cool, you know, yeah. pretty <laughs> and all that. They're all um, uh, unique, one of one. No two are yeah. the same. Oh, interesting. Okay, all right. Well, we can dive into that a bit later. What was your first exposure to Mellow and how'd you get involved? Going back to, I guess, uh, the mid 90s, my parents got involved kind of when Mellow was still growing. It was started in 1974 um, and we picked up in around like 1995, I believe. And my parents came here from South Africa and they're looking for business to do. So uh, my dad is a restaurateur. My grandfather's a restaurateur. So it's kind of in the family blood. So he came to Atlanta and just looked with different brokers and he found this little like hole in the wall pizza joint at the time. And we're like, wait, take that part out. I don't mean to hold the wall. <laughs> they found this good pizza <laughs> okay. joint called Mel Mushroom. And the dough was what sold him. The dough is kind of the uh, the quintessential piece of the pie. Obviously, if you have good dough, you have a good pizza. 
And that's really what's what hooked him. And we're lucky that he kind of got on that early on and he bought a duo package. And then he was running two stores from the get-go, which is oh wow, <laughs> very tough. Whether you have two stores or 20 stores, it's just the same, right? It's not one. So he started off having two. So I guess we were built-in multi-unit owners <laughs> from the get-go. But yeah, pretty soon after that, we opened up our third one. Um, and we stuck with those three for, for, for quite a while. And then around the beginning of 2000s, right, early 2000s, we really ramped up and we did our fourth, fifth, and sixth one in pretty short order. We pretty much were able to grab three more locations within the Atlanta market. And we were able to kind of go from one to one to one, back to back to back. So very quickly, we went from three to six, right? And that's, wow. yeah, they were all builds. So there weren't any uh, buys. There was an old Korean barbecue place that we literally had to buy the rights of to then shut it down and build a male mushroom. Oh, wow. Yeah. The, the location was great, which in, in restaurants, your location's everything. But in order to buy this location, the guy wanted to sell us his restaurant. And we're like, okay, well, we have to literally buy this guy's Korean barbecue. And this was before Korean barbecue was cool, right? This was like in like 2002, <laughs> when like no one knew what it was. It was no surprise yeah. he was selling. <laughs> but yeah, so we had to buy that, shut it down, convert it into a mel mushroom. That was one of them. The other, we bought the rights to kind of a really popular area in Atlanta called Sandy Springs. And that was where one of, I think it was like the second mellow mushroom ever was built, but it was tiny, right? It was like a very small footprint. And we moved it down the street into a beautiful new building. That was, I think, the fifth one. Then we did a standalone building where we just did a ground lease and built it from the ground up. So my dad was the developer, everything for it, right? All we did was pay the ground lease, like literally to rent the dirt. And have to build a building, infrastructure, piping, you name it. We have to build it from the ground up. Yeah. Wow. So that was the sixth one. And then we did the seventh one. Actually, the seventh one was our probably, besides the original two that we bought, the seventh one was the only existing mellow that we bought and took over. That was not a build. That was just a transfer of ownership, basically. Okay. And wh- when did you acquire that one? That one was 2015, 2016, I believe. Okay, gotcha. So, so you basically grew up, you know, oh, you're watching breathing. your father kind of. <laughs> yeah, yeah br- I, I, I remember doing payroll with my dad. I was like, oh wow, I was like literally <laughs> going with him store to store, dropping off payroll. And uh, at the time, one of our director or the director of operations would say to the people, like, "Be careful, this guy will be your boss one day." <laughs> Another time, I was like nine, ten, whatever, and then here we are. Wow. All right. So, it starts out your father does two new builds at the same time to start. Right. No, well, no, he, the, the, the two he bought existing. Oh, okay. So he started off acquiring two, then three through six are new builds, and yep. then finishes off the seventh with an acquisition. That's right. Okay, wow. So, yeah, I mean, so basically it sounds like 1995, you said, you know, starts out with acquiring two, expands it to six locations over the next 10 years. Yeah. And then it sounds like, Another 10 years go by and he decides yeah. to acquire another one. Pretty much. Wow. All right. So let's just get into it then, man. I mean, yeah. you know, like I see the look, uh, the investment for a mellow mushroom uh, for a food franchise. It's it's on the higher end. It's about one point six substantial. Yeah, it's about one point six million to two point three million per location, according to their franchise disclosure document. And so a lot of people who hear that would probably say, who the hell can afford a, a restaurant <laughs> for that? Uh, right. So do you do you want to kind of just generally you know 
how did your father and how do you guys as a company think about financing that? Sure. So a lot of uh, restaurateurs, this will, a lot of new people looking at going into the restaurant space have a very limited scope of what they can do to finance it. It's either they think it's all cash or expensive debt, but a really popular program that I'm sure uh, seasoned people know, obviously, is uh, the SBA financing, right? Where the SBA will back your local bank for up to, I believe it's like 80% of what the bill is. I, I could be wrong on these numbers, but I think I'm just generally speaking. No, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's 85 to 90% potentially. It's 85 to 90 yeah. High. So, I mean, yeah. you really don't need that much equity in terms of cash. What you do need is obviously good credit and good banking relationships. So you really don't need that much cash on hand to get it going. But the problem is, right, once you do it, you're on the hook for it. So you better be damn sure that you pick the right location to get that thing up and running. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think the once you kind of understand what's possible with financing, it really it, it really opens up your eyes. Yeah, it really <laughs> yeah. does. Because, I mean, you, you just can you can acquire a acquire existing locations or be built, you know, do a new build for minimal cash down and have more cash flow coming through the next year. And there's a couple of things I've seen people do. And uh, another one that people in the space know of is seller financing, which is very popular where yes. uh, you're able to, and I'm not sure if you can do seller financing in conjunction with SBA, because that'll be the dream, right? <laughs> but <laughs> Exactly. But I, I think a lot of people, especially if it's a smaller restaurant or smaller franchise, seller financing, it's very popular because people enter the space who may not have that much credit, that much history, right? If you're a 21 year old coming into the space and you're trying to acquire a $400,000 franchise, the bank probably won't lend you the money, but that's not to say the seller won't finance it for you. If you put in, let's say a hundred grand, they do seller financing of 300,000 and you slowly pay it off. And then from there, you have an existing restaurant that you can use as collateral, whatever you need to, to then parlay into your next venture and just repeat, repeat, repeat. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of the name of the game is really, if you can get yourself that first location, mm-hmm. and especially if it's performing well, everything just gets a lot easier. It does. It just builds on you. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, uh, right. Like as you compound and grow locations, you just have more assets to leverage. So uh, obviously you've got to be smart about that leverage, but you know, that, that's kind of just the playbook you see across all industries with multi-unit franchise owners. It all starts the same way. Whether it's food, I'm sure fitness is the same. I'm sure anything else is relatively similar because it's not so much the actual brand, it's the process that you do with it. Exactly, man. It's all about the process. And you sound like you're pretty familiar with the financing side of things. So, you know, tell me about what did you do before the family business, um, before you kind of got into it with Mellow Mushroom with your family? Yeah. So uh, growing up, I've always been interested in business, interested in entrepreneurship, But I knew going into the family business, people wouldn't necessarily take you serious if you go straight from school or undergrad into the family business. Like, oh, he just slides right in. So I thought to myself, where can I go, learn the most, kind of get paid the most to then be able to have an understanding of business? And of course, (laughs) my eyes set to Wall Street, specifically (laughs) into uh, M&A, right? For those who know mergers and acquisitions. So my overall concept was if I can understand the high level of what drives successful businesses, I can take that, distill it, and bring it back into the family business on a per unit economic basis. So that's kind of where I went straight up undergrad. I worked for a bulge bracket bank up in New York um, within the consumer retail group. And then obviously I had a specific focus in restaurants given my background. So that's where I've learned all the nitty gritty I I was very privy to how deals were underwritten in the hundreds of millions of dollar range. So I figured it's probably similar, 
to the smaller units. So seeing all yeah. the EBITDA, which for those who don't know, EBITDA is uh, your cash flow, a proxy for cash flow. Um, I was able to see detailed franchise groups, what they do, how they do it, how they build, what's considered attractive, what's not considered attractive. So I had a really good understanding of your base fundamentals. And then um, I was able to pivot and come to Atlanta within finance, still working in, in the restaurant M&A space, where I got to kind of be a lot closer to home, seeing the Atlanta markets. And then eventually I moved on uh, back into the family business. And I took all that, distilled it, and hopefully I've been a good ad for, for, for the family business thus far. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Uh, I mean, I, I love that. I think just earning your stripes, and I've seen this with some owner groups that I worked for in a past life where just coming in with some pedigree from a different company does speak volumes to it makes all the difference. Yeah. It, yeah. it makes people yeah. realize why should they listen to you? Not so much the actual day-to-day employees, but the managers. There needs to be a reason why they should listen to you. Yes, a hundred percent. So you went from Wall Street, right? Where I'm sure you're up early, staying in the oh, office late, man. wearing a suit and every day. Ties, suits, yeah. dress shoes. Now I have cornmeal everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> So how was the transition? I got to ask, you know, going from that and and you're learning these high level concepts, you know, kind of doing M&A, but then you show up at Mellow Mushroom. But what's that like showing up basically at a, at a pizza restaurant from Wall Street? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> um, one thing I learned the hard way, <laughs> um, managing people, man, that's that's the name of the game. It's managing people. I, I came into the family business with the same mindset and expectation of when I was in Wall Street, which obviously I knew it was different, but I also didn't realize just how, just how different it was. So one of the things I was very privy to was spreadsheets, understanding numbers, understanding reports. So I would try to make processes at first, like I did in Wall Street, but for the family business, and then you realize your managers sometimes don't wake up on time. They don't show up. So you're like, okay, if you have all these great processes, but you have the wrong people in place, it all means nothing. So very quickly, I kind of learned you need boots on the ground. You need to understand your people, build from that foundation, and then you're able to take the process and build from that. You can't just come in guns blazing, which I learned the hard way where it's, it just doesn't work that way. Definitely. So uh, what is something that you've gathered over the, the past few years now to establish like a really good base of managers for your system? So it's going to sound very cliched, but it's one of those things people say it all the time because it's true. You need to lead by example. So in the restaurant business, which I can talk from personally, obviously not other franchises, but if you can't get in the kitchen and create the food and show them you know how to create the food, they'll never take you seriously. There are times okay. where you have to send people home. You have to fire them. And if you can't step in and say, you know what? I can do your job. You can't. You're out of here. They'll never listen to you. So you've got to establish some, some power base, whether it's you're an expert in the food. For me, I drove a lot of my power base from my catering knowledge. And some people have a very strong front of house presence, right? So for me, I kind of was able to tackle all three. But in, in restaurants specifically, you have to be able to create the food. If you don't, there's just no one's going to listen to you. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see that. And so when you first step in, did you just basically just go through a, a full-blown training pro? Yeah, boot camp, yeah. exactly, where you so, learned uh, every role? Right. So um, I was lucky because obviously growing up in the family business, I had a good sense of how things operated. So I had a very good foundational level, uh, but a, a lot of franchise groups, and I'm very lucky with uh, Mellow Mushroom, they do an excellent job of training new franchisees and managers. I got to do, I think it was a, I think it was a three week, it was either a two or three week boot camp with them at their corporate office 
starting from the very bottom and working your way up. So oh, I, had, nice. I had some former knowledge, but they, I, I went through this like, like intense training boot camp where I kind of got brought right up to speed. So I had this crash course. And then from there, I spent a few months after that kind of starting in a store, running a store, then kind of overseeing the actual aspects like scheduling, food ordering, how to make the food, learning the nitty gritty. Because at the end of the day, in a franchise, if you can't run a store, where's your money going to go? That makes sense too, that you kind of go through that training program and Mellow Mushroom's offices, right? Like their corporate offices yeah. in Atlanta. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So I was very lucky. I didn't have to fly anywhere or drive. Yeah. I just woke up and drove <laughs> down the yeah. road. <laughs> That's clutch. But yeah, that people who fly in from all over, new franchisees especially, but also new new managers are given the option of uh, attending these as well. So they that's have a great. great, great training. And that's one of the things I'm sure we'll touch on later. But when you do franchises, you have to be very, very particular and careful who you pick because that whole entire brand equity will make or break you. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's it's tough, right? Because there's so many franchises out it's there. It's very tough. Right? There's, yeah. there's 4,000 plus franchises, like 300 new ones or 300 right. to 350 new ones every year. I saw what you put out like last week about the one, sorry for cutting you off, but the one from no, no. Israel that uh, absconded with the money. Oh, yeah. Burger Rim. That was That's a mess. Why? I mean, that, that is a mess still. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you got to be careful, right? Because it's an investment and it is a regulated investment. Franchises are in the United States. You know, it's regulated by the Federal Trade Commission. But Oh, is that right? Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So, but I mean- Bad shit still goes down. So uh, that's, that's part of my inspiration for the account is just bring a level of transparency to brands and, and kind of hold them accountable. Yeah. And, and it's overwhelming. And when things are overwhelming in the beginning, you know, right, if you're working a corporate job and you want to be an entrepreneur and you're looking at franchises, yeah, it's just tough to navigate. And w when you're not sure of yourself and you're feeling overwhelmed, it, it can lead to poor decision making. And you're just vulnerable to folks like that Burger Rim founder who uh, basically stole a bunch of money via franchise fees. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, be careful out there, folks. Yeah, no, for real. It's, uh, it's, it's a rough game. So you mentioned something earlier about kind of your catering experience so far with Mellow. And I know, you know, you mentioned a concept to me once before uh, about unused capacity. So do you want to just kind of explain that concept and how it's impacted what you've been doing at Mellow? There's a concept, I think it's in a direct marketing way back when it was either Dan Kennedy or Jay Abrams who mentioned the concept of unused capacity. And that's basically what do you have available to you? Or when I say you, you're a business that you aren't using or aren't taking full advantage of that you could squeeze out some extra profits. And in the restaurant business, there's a lot of downtime. Um, really, your, your prime hours are your dinner hours for majority of it and also your lunch as well. But that leaves majority of the day open for something to be used from, right? And yeah. I kind of, by mistake, really, stumbled into catering very early on when I came back to the family business. And it's been an absolute game changer for us. It's uh, one of those things where your margins are just incredible because you don't have any extra overhead. You're already paying the rent. You're already paying your general manager salaries. Your only additional is your food cost and whatever labor costs you incur. And of course, your uh, franchise fees that go on the sales. But if you do some quick mass man, it's like a 50% profit margin. And the best part about it is you pretty much can run those sales in the off times, which is where I kind of learned that unused capacity. So for us, we did all, not all, but a lot of your catering is done for the lunchtime business. And a lot of it has to be out of your door by 1130, 1145. 
because you have to transport to the actual client side where they're eating by 12, 1230. So you're able to use a lot of that morning time to make a good amount of money when you would previously just do nothing with it. So you're able to really squeeze out some nice profit on that unused capacity. Interesting. Yeah. So like, what would, uh, are your stores open while you're prepping for your catering clients? You know? Oh yeah. Well, yeah. So what are the standard operating hours for a mellow mushroom? The retail hours when, when guests can come in and out are usually from like 11 to 9 30, 10 o'clock, right? That's okay. your defined hours of operation. Uh, we have most of our managers come in around 9, 9.30 to kind of get the store set up for the day. And that's the time when typically if I have a big order, depending on the size of it and the time it needs to go out, I'll come in at any time at like 7, 7.30 to make sure everything's up and running. Um, coming from Atlanta, we've had quite a few like high profile clients who just over time through reputation, through building trust with them, they've given us some very nice size orders for us. We have home Depot, the headquarters of home Depot. from I was going to say home Depot's headquartered there. Yeah. We had a, uh, I don't even know how we did this. We had around a $5,000 lunch order for them on Valentine's day of 2020 and it was incredible because they're like, oh, yeah, we have to feed our department. And of course, I've worked with this lady so many times and I know kind of the rough size of it. But what I didn't know was that they had the entirety of the department to feed and they came to Mel Mushroom to have it done. So I, I don't even know what wow. time I got there. I probably got there like seven o'clock to get everything up and running. I mean, it was a we had Damn. multiple uh, waves because there was so much food to get out to them. Wow. Well, well I love that because, right, I mean, you're in the restaurant game, which is naturally of retail you're selling right. to, to retail consumers but the catering side you're kind it's of B2B. transforming it yeah it's b2b so yeah which is where I mean, you like, really want to play yeah i mean like like most b2b products i mean a the people purchasing it aren't actually dipping into their own personal bank account Correct. which i've just seen people are much more much more they're much more happier to spend their money when it's not theirs right the, the whole thing with that is if you can make their life easier it's game over they don't care what you sell yeah, no, definitely. Uh, there's a good something. Someone quoted this on Twitter. It was like direct to consumer is you have to prove through the marketing that the buyer, like your product will make them happy. And then yeah. B2B is you have to make sure that the purchaser won't feel any regret, yeah, meaning like no. that their higher 100%. up can't come cracking down on them and say, why did you agree to purchase this? Yeah, um, exactly. As long as you're good with that, then you're in. And what's crazy in the catering space, and I'll tell you this, uh, people just really, really don't know what they're doing. Like there's people who will show up late, not set up correctly. It's so few things you have to do right to stand out and people just just throw it all away. I mean, I've had people tell me like, you won't like, oh, I'm going to pull up some notes here that I had from one yeah. of my catering uh, clients when I basically had a interview and I'm like, look, so what are people doing right? What are they doing wrong? And she gave me a whole host of stuff. Oh, so you just asked basically someone at a company who orders lunch a lot and, yeah. and said like, what what do the restaurants mess up and <laughs> what, what should they do well? I yeah, I had a, uh, um, a, a really good contact at IHG, which is a pretty big hotel group. I'm not sure if they're headquartered in Atlanta. I think they are, but they, uh, they certainly have a huge presence here. And one of the things that she said when I say like, what does it take to go above and beyond for her? She goes, it, it sounds crazy, but just show up with multiple people in the sense that don't have one person running to and from the car, trying to set it up. You want to be efficient, yeah. right? So that's yep. the first one. Two, set the food up. 
right? Don't just drop it off and say, okay, cool. I'm going, I'm I'll, like, see you later. That's one of them. Um, fast response, meaning like if they email you or call you, you're quick to get it back to them. The another one is good at communication, which basically is if they have any type of dietary preference, any type of, you know, any restriction, just make sure you listen to them and you're able to tell them, yes, we can accommodate or no, don't just ignore the question. And then the last one is like, (laughs) it sounds, it sounds even worse. Actually happy to be there and set up. (laughs) Don't just show up being grumpy, have some type of happiness. Just even if you have to fake the smile, it goes a long way because these people are stressed out all day admins where they basically have to put out fires and make sure things don't go bad. And if you show up happy, it rubs off on them. For sure. Now, and and even just um, the smoother the catering process goes, it just takes, I would imagine, a lot of stress off them. Because if if the caterers aren't doing a good job, in a way, I I would guess the admin feels like that's reflecting on them because they're the ones who chose them. Because they're the ones who choose the, the, the lunch. And the obvious one will be, why did you choose them? Yeah, yeah. A lot of what you said, too, just sounds from someone who used to work in a customer service role. Easier said than done. But a lot of what you just said is kind of customer service 101, right? Just show up on time, set it up for them. Don't just leave them hanging and give them a smile. When I started really uh, figuring out this catering stuff, I very, I was able to see a lot of parallels to my time. It's going to be crazy, but my time on Wall Street with this, where in the sense of for me, the same thing as getting a deal done is getting a large client because it's all relationship driven. Yeah. If you do one deal well on Wall Street, they will follow you around whichever bank you go to. And the same way here, if you do really well for them, that person, if they go from Home Depot to Delta or to Coca-Cola, chances are they'll go with you and they'll take you say, hey, this person helped me in this role. Now I'm going over here. Let me use them against I know they will do a great job. It's really all about the trust, right? I mean, if, if they know that you're going to do a good job. I mean, it's just, it's a no brainer. Why wouldn't you keep going back to them? And what's crazy, if you're a restaurant owner, and for me, um, I know we spoke earlier about this example, but is it easier to sell 100 pizzas to 100 people or to sell one person 100 pizzas? And yeah. if you have that one person who has to order every week or every month, you want to be damn sure you're on that short list because it's just as close as you can, it's recurring revenue for restaurants. That's where I, what I was thinking. You know, just that those repeat customers and right. I mean, those are bulk orders. So oh, yeah. it's like, not, it's not every, your, uh, you know, so your I, classic. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a big like I love pizza and I'm based yeah. in Manhattan. So I eat quite a bit, of, you know, a yeah. good amount. But and there's one restaurant nearby that uh, every Friday night I'm walking in there. But yeah, if, if, if you're a corporate client and every third week of the month you're ordering thousands of dollars worth of food that's a lot better situation for you as an owner than 100%. me. 100%. <laughs> yeah. And what's, well, what's crazy is I, uh, I love marketing, understanding people, understanding all types of advertising. And one of the forms of marketing that I really was drawn to over the years just for personal enjoyment was direct marketing. And I kind of found a way to blend direct marketing into catering. And I've had some pretty crazy results from it because Hardly anyone I know is doing it. The only person I know who's doing it is this guy called Michael Atias, who's really, really successful at it. But he's the only one I've ever found in the space who does something similar to it. And it's just taking something that you found that works in one industry, applying it to, to your industry and getting some crazy results from it. What do Shaq, Venus Williams, and Drew Brees have in common aside from sports? 
They've all made millions from investing in franchises. And now, that opportunity is available to anyone. With Franchairs, you can invest anywhere from $500 to $500,000 to earn passive income from franchises. They'll carefully build, manage, and grow your franchise portfolio. So all you have to do is sit back and receive your check each month, plus a lump sum when the portfolio sells. The waitlist is growing fast, so don't miss out. Join thousands of other investors and start passively investing in franchises at Franchairs.com. I mean, if you're a business owner, especially and you're selling to retail consumers, if there's a way, tr- try to find a way to start a B2B revenue stream. Exactly, because you can take your catering. Like, I think I, I put a very short tweet out there the other day where it's if you're doing, let's say, a million dollars in restaurant sales, right? And you're taking home 10% profit, which is in line with what restaurants do, depending. Yeah. If you run an additional 200,000 in catering, you could take home another 100,000 from that. So if you're doing 1.2 million, you're doubling your net income strictly based off of that revenue stream, right? So if you scale it up, you could be making substantially more from your, it's, it's almost like your restaurant sales will pay for the overhead and your profits taken from your catering sales. Yeah. It's a much higher margin service. I, I can definitely see that. And there's no risk of having to have another lease, having to hire another manager. All that expense is capped already. Yeah, no, I mean, it's honestly, it's, it's a great strategy. <laughs> yeah, people just don't understand. And, and that's one of the things when uh, people talk about franchising, I really, really tell them, look, if you're going to go into or the people who are looking at the space, I would I would tell them, go into something where you can either, do, if it's restaurants, do catering, right? Or I mean, I don't know what it'll be if it's fitness, but find a way to get that B2B segment going because that will be where all your profit is. Oh, d- definitely. I mean, I mean, even right. If we want to talk fitness, I, I don't know that I, this could just be naive of me, but maybe you reach out to companies and say you'll give some form of a discount to all their employees if they offer. Yeah. It. Um, and like it's a win-win, right? The company gets to give a benefit to their employees. You get potentially a high volume of customers from that one client. I think LA Fitness does it. That, that, I don't know if you guys have LA Fitness up there, but it's just like a very, very big like. Um, I, I've seen the concept. So I think they do corporate memberships and I think it's the same thing, right? If they can sell the owner of a company on them and they say, hey, we're going to pay for all you guys to have memberships, they look like a hero because you're providing everyone a great benefits. And that person now gets tens or hundreds of new members dealing with one person, which is the same thing as me dealing with one person to sell a hundred pizzas. He's dealing with one person to sell a hundred memberships. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, now that we're saying this, you know, I worked for a a franchise in the in the trades in the HVAC world a while back and we had a deal with their local retro fitness which is a yeah. franchise and it was like a discounted membership if we signed right. up to, to one of their gyms so yeah uh, it's definitely possible and, and I just I love that I think I think it's a great strategy it's it's uh you know anything where that requires this the same effort as basically all your other you're scaling uh, revenue drivers with, with leverage yeah yeah exactly I mean you're you're just the the ceiling on it is, is way higher. And yeah, I mean, we're certainly not reinventing the wheel here. We're just taking what's working and doing with it. Yeah. And so how do you think about this with, you know, you got seven locations. Are you yeah. kind of running the catering out of one location or do you, is each restaurant kind of its own business per se? So that, that that's a great question. Um, the way I like to run it is I like, so we have our seven restaurants are all within the Atlanta market. And within that we have, five of them that are pretty, pretty close to each other. So I run 
majority of the catering out of one of the restaurants, that, that's the largest footprint because some of our stores are smaller, some are bigger. Um, and again, the concept of unused capacity and one of our restaurants that's, that's quite large, we have a lot of space. So why not centralize all your catering from one place that you know you can effectively run it all out? If you have the space where if you happen to get busy for lunch, you still have the space to run your catering. And I know not every restaurant or every group has that benefit, but if you do, why not take advantage of it? So we run everything out of one for the primary Atlanta market. And the ones that are a little bit further away, we let them run their own. But to the extent I can control it, I like to have my control on it. <laughs> Definitely. Now, I mean, and it, it makes sense what you said, right? If you have the space, yeah, wh- why not? Um, it centralizes. And especially it. you can build a team at that store rather than having exactly. one person running it at seven stores, have a team of four at one, which is so much more effective than one person at each store trying to run that because they have to organize the delivery. They have to organize everything versus having a team. I mean, at our prime before uh, COVID happened, it was uh, myself at the head of the group. And then I had two cooks and then two front of house, two or three. It was a group of like four or five people and it was just smooth running. And we were able to leverage all that because if you had each person at an individual store, the synergies would just not be there. The synergies themselves play a huge role because if you have, let's say, an order, if you have four orders that need to go between 11 and 1130, one person could never make that happen. But if you have a group of four, you can easily make it happen. You're spending the same labor dollars. You're just being able to get more revenue for those labor dollars spent. Definitely. Definitely. No, I mean, I think centralizing it sounds like the way to go, just operationally, much less complex and kind of let those employees specialize in the specific nuances to catering versus just all the other operations of a regular restaurant. Yeah, that's right. So we've talked a lot about kind of the service side and strategy, but how do you think about product? You know, right? Like the food has to be good to uh, (laughs) keep getting the orders. I mean, without that, then you guys, yeah. So, I mean, is, I assume you guys believe in and still do a lot in the product, right? That's your heart and soul of everything. If you have a inferior customer service, but a great product, people will come back begrudgingly because you have a great product, right? But if you have excellent customer service and a poor product, people will come to you that first time, have a great experience and the food comes and like, okay, well, we're not coming back here because I mean, why, why would you? Customer experience is important, but if your food quality, especially if you're a little bit pricier is not there, there's so many people out there that they can go to. So you won't get a second chance. Yeah, no, definitely. And I'm I'm looking at your the menu right now. It looks yeah. like a lot of a lot of specialty pizzas. A lot of specialty pizzas, a lot of uh specialty cocktails. So the the whole name of the game, right, is if you can combine some type of distinct product you have. And for us, um, well, just in society, pizza is kind of considered a commodity, right? Everyone, yes. everyone sells it. So you have to find a way, what do you do to specialize your pizza? And obviously in New York, you have New York sell pizza. But yeah, so going back to pizza being a commodity, you have like the New York pizza, which is different. My personal favorite besides Mellow is the Neapolitan style pizza. Love that pizza. But it all comes down to the dough, which is the only thing that matters for pizza. What is your dough? So for us, we take pride in our dough. Uh, we have a special blend we use for our marinara sauce, which we call the red sauce. Everything <laughs> is, is very built on what your pizza is. And if you can deliver that, people will come back time and time again. I imagine we can't get into the details of what's going into that dough. So I won't ask the question, but uh, it sounds like 
you guys take a lot of pride in it, which is good to see. That's what's one of those things where that's just what differentiates you as a franchisee or franchisor, I should say. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Do you see challenges from location to location or has it been pretty much a standard operation, you know, across all your seven locations versus like, I guess what I'm, a better form of asking the question is, does each location in your system present different challenges or is it all pretty much cookie cutter the same? It very much depends on your demographic, right? We have a downtown location that just this past weekend got absolutely slammed because there was a convention in town. And on a normal weekend, they, they do well. But when there's conventions, and especially if you're not aware of what's happening in your area, you could get hit by surprise like no other. So the short answer is everyone faces the same issues, whether it's labor, whether it's your food quality. But depending on location, you do have some like nuanced stuff that happen. So our, our downtown location is a prime example of you have to be on top of your market because things can come up. You have your recurring conventions that happen every year. And then you also have things that pop up because people want to try it out. And if you don't know what's happening in your market, it could be a Tuesday morning and you think, okay, it's going to be an easy lunch, but there could be a, a convention for people on that Tuesday morning that have never happened before. And you could get obliterated if you have no idea. So yeah, it, it very much is market dependent. Wow. So that location, the downtown, that's in Atlanta proper. Correct. Yeah. That's it. Yep. 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 Wow. Okay. All right. So that's, that's some prime real estate. Then. <laughs> uh, I, I could see that. Yeah. And I mean, it's a good problem to have. It is a good problem to have, right. You all of a sudden have a hundred customers show up, but I get why, again, like I've been in customer service. It's stressful when you have lines at your store and it can you're, be you maybe you're, you're probably understaffed. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, it, you, you could be closing at like 945, you're getting ready for to close and you have two buses pull in because they just finished some baseball tournament and you have a hundred people about to come out and you've already powered down your oven. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it can wow. be, yeah. yeah, for those, cause this won't be on video. Yeah. Uh, my jaw was dropping when you were saying that. So, <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you, I mean, Nick, what, what do you do in that situation? Do you, you turn you them away the or best. do you guys? <laughs> no, you, oh, so, so, you surely don't turn them away. You, uh, well, the easiest way, right. It's just to tell them, Hey guys, like, we can serve you. I mean, if you can, right? If you've sent people home and you actually can't, I highly advise against trying to run the show on your own. But to the extent you can, you really want to get them because if they're coming for something, chances are the next year, they're going to come again and again and again. Yeah. And you have that, you have like a few of those sprinkled throughout the year. That could be pretty substantial revenue because they then tell people, oh, after the, you know, let's say it was a baseball tournament again. After they finished, they could say one of the only places open is Mel Mushroom. We went last year and it was awesome. Let's go again. And now instead of two buses, you have six buses coming in. Yeah, no, definitely. You have to always think in terms of every customer you turn away is not a lost sale. It's a lot of lost sales because it's not just them coming back, but it's them telling everyone else to come back. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I like it. You're playing the long game. And, yeah, you very much You know, re re recurring revenues obviously very it's it's a desirable. <laughs> it's a buzzword yeah but it, it's desirable everyone wants it you know between the catering and even what you just said with the conferences i mean it there, it's not you know you're not signing anyone up on, that's making a yeah. monthly payment or an annual payment so to speak but you know you kind of do have these built-in recurring revenue streams through relationships right you certainly do because you have people who come back as we said before for the product because your product has to be strong but also for the experience, right? And if you can combine both of those, you literally have a money printing machine because people want to go somewhere they enjoy. And if the food's great, they're, they're, they're going to be coming back. It's really interesting. Yeah, we, we have a uh, location, just to give you a quick example, that 
we've had people coming there before they were married, just on dates. And now they come back with their families, like their kids. Like it's just become a neighborhood staple. Wow. That's amazing. That's got to be really awesome to see, especially, especially for your dad too, who like started it. Right. And I'm sure you're probably going to see that too, but like he, he probably just gets to know people and has a lot of great relationships through the restaurant. Exactly. Like he, it's crazy. When he started, he was running the show, right? Obviously being in the stores. And now he goes back and like a lot of people just know him because he's been around for so long in the same industry, in the same brand, and just knows exactly what he's doing. He executes it like flawlessly. That's awesome. And I'm curious now at this point, seven restaurants, he's obviously got you helping out. Yeah. How many hours a week would you say he, he's working at this point? Ooh, him. Uh, like on Mellow Mushroom or even in Mellow Mushroom, if he still is? Definitely not in. He is, he is not in the operations day to day. But I would say he still probably pushes like 40 hours a week because even when he's not working, he's thinking. So it's very few times when he's not actually involved. But again, he is, he is getting up there. He's, he's turning 60 this year. So he's uh, starting to want to phase out a little bit. But in the heat of it, I remember as a kid, um, <laughs> I would always wonder why my parents' date nights would be Wednesdays. I never thought twice about it. I was like, oh, that's just normal. And I was like, okay, sure. And now I'm like, oh, wait, that makes a lot of sense because it can't be a Friday. It can't be Saturday because that's when all your business <laughs> happens. So it all yeah. adds up to Wednesday date nights. So yeah, when I was growing up, he was a lot more in the actual weeds of it. But now he's developed a system where he's no longer actually having to be in the weeds, right? He has the kind of kind of like a chairman role in the sense that he has the relationships with the banks, the relationships with the landlords, the relationships yep. with the franchisor. So he's running the actual relationship side of the business. And then I'm kind of stepping into running the operations, right? Like a cook calls out, an oven goes down. Like he's he's not fixing those things. I'm the one fixing those things. Interesting. Yeah. No. Um, and uh, maybe a better question, because I think something that a lot of people are curious about is, okay, you can build up multiple locations, become a multi-unit owner, but am I just, are they just multiplying their work when you go from two locations to six? You know, do you have, you know, three times as many work, as much work when you do that? Or, That's a good question. You know, and if your dad wanted to, right, could he cut his hours in half if he wanted to, or is it a necessity? You know, but I know a lot of owners, they love working in their business and on their business. There's two types of people. I guess the people who want to be involved, like my dad's a very hands-on operator. And I don't think that's going to change whether he wants to or not. He just loves, he, he lives and breathes it. So for him, he just grew up, his dad was a restaurateur. He's involved in the restaurants like that. So he just loves it. But in terms of like the hours, you can easily scale back, right? And the, the, the beauty of franchise is as you get more units, you get a bigger amount of support you can then use to pay people to do the work you don't want to do. So if you want to be fully hands-off, it's just a cost of who can I pay to run the business? Because the skill set isn't rocket science, right? It's can I trust someone? Do they have the necessary skills to run it? Definitely, man. I mean, labor's everything. And I completely agree. I've seen that across many industries that efficiencies just come with scale. The biggest challenge is getting from that one unit to two. And people think, oh, it's tough going from two to three or two to seven. It really isn't because if you can master two, you can do three. If you can do three, you can do five. You can do five, you can do seven. Yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent, man. I mean, I, I firmly believe location number one's the hardest. Yeah. One to two is also a challenge, but it, it just, it does get easier from there. 
And the only thing I would say is if you have multiple locations, you have to be hands-on in the sense that if one manager goes down, you have to be damn sure to figure out why, because as soon as you have two or three going down, then it presents a huge issue. So it's not like hands-off entirely, but it's keeping your pulse on everything. Definitely, definitely. But but I just think that, you know, once you have multiple locations oh, under yeah. your belt, that's when it really the the beauty of franchising comes into full effect where it's it's rinse and repeat. Exactly. Because if you have a director of operations who oversees your daily of everything, whether you add more stores, it's all you have to do is if you get to a point where you have too many stores, all you'll do is get a second director of operations. And because you have more stores, you then support that payroll and you still take home what you want to take home. Yeah. The beauty of it is if you're younger, you can run that role yourself when you have the energy, right? And then as you get older and you want to kind of be more hands-off, you can do that same thing and pay someone to do that while you're still making a good amount of money. So it just depends what you want to get out of it. Like for me, I, I'm obviously young. I have a strong work ethic. Like I, I love doing this stuff. So it's, no, it's a no-brainer. But as you get older, your priorities change, right? You have a family. You have kids. You want to spend time with them. All of a sudden, you don't have that drive to want to work 100 hours a week. You say, you know what? If I can earn X and these people can take care of it for me, I'm happy. I think the biggest thing that people want is the optionality. That's right. right. To be in a position where you can make the call. Like, A, you're in a position if you want to grind and work long hours you're getting the financial upside Correct. because you're the Correct. owner. Yeah. But if also on the flip side, right, if you don't want to keep grinding, that you can scale yourself out and you're and still making good money. Yeah. And that's that's what you can, those that's are the, the situations key. you get yourself into as a multi-donor. You, you can pick your path. That's right. If you want to, you can make an incredible amount of money by working crazy hard. But if you do it correct, you can make, I mean, obviously not the same, but a very, very good amount of money by building an organization, not just you are the business, which a lot of other companies, when you're the owner, you have to make it happen. But franchising or really just multi-unit ownership has that optionality. No, it's yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing when it really comes to fruition after some years of, of building at the foundation. So that begs the question, what is your your goal long term? Like just generally, you know, <laughs> yeah, are you no. uh, trying to expand the empire? Of course, always, always <laughs> looking to what I can do. The uh, the key is if, if you can find good people, there's just no there's no end because you have people running it and it's just, it's a family business we have and it's a family legacy. I want to just keep continuing. I love that. And do you see just potentially more mellow mushrooms in the future, other food concepts, other industry concepts? Yeah, so other industries likely not because I've developed such an expertise in the food industry. Yep. Makes sense. And one of the things I'll, I'll tell people if they, if they ask is, would I go into another concept or would I go into another thing that's not franchised? Hell no. I have to have a franchise because I know <laughs> operations. I don't know the first thing about what makes a brand strong. Like people like they say, oh, I can go open up Nick's Pizza. Like, of course you could, but who's going to come eat your pizza? Where's the marketing? What's the color scheme? What's the menu? There are so many things people don't think about they think, oh, I don't want to pay franchise fees. I happily pay franchise. Well, the businesses happily pay franchise fees. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's you're you're paying for such a strong, robust backbone. I don't know. It's just very foolish not to to save seven percent to not have all the incredible resources. It seems like a very poor decision. So yeah, has to be franchise for me. Has to be in the food business. 
No, yeah, I mean that, that's uh, that's a great soundbite. That's a great marketing soundbite for <laughs> franchises as an industry, right there. Yeah, but but I agree, man. I mean, I, I think the stigma against it is when you know you have that franchise like the one we talked about, where the founder fled to Israel, and you know the the bad apples kind of soil the rest of of the the good players in the industry. But when you do have a brand that's bringing a lot to the table, I mean. It's a no brainer. The, the royalties really, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's being penny wise and dollar foolish, as I like to say. I mean, because people will, like, for instance, you have people who come into Atlanta and they come to, well, I guess Atlanta's a bad example because it started here. Let's say you're in somewhere in like Colorado, right? And you're flying in from Atlanta and you see a mellow mushroom. You're like, oh, I, I know that. I'm going to go there because I know it. But yeah. if there was a Nick's Pizza, you wouldn't think twice about it. You'd be looking for something you know. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, m- most people are creatures of habit. And especially going back to like, go, go back to like catering. If you have a strong brand that sells itself to the catering people as well, because if you can deliver a strong brand product, but you can bring that personal touch of customer service, like we said before, the person just does not want to be felt like an idiot. So you get yeah. them good food on time, game over. Yep. Yeah. No, the brand is, it's a source of inbound interest. Right. That, you have to protect you the brand because it's it's everything. All right, man. Well, I guess just kind of transitioning here and wrapping up. How uh, right? I mean, we're coming out of COVID to some extent. You know, every geography is different. But just how have you and, and the family been dealing with the current labor market? And you know, any anything you guys have have learned to battle with it? It's been tough, man. It's been very tough. The labor market, obviously, since I've been around, it's the worst I've seen which has only been for a few short years. But I was talking to my father all the time and he says it's the toughest he's seen in 20 years because wow. especially when the unemployment was happening, you couldn't get people to come in that door. You just couldn't. The labor market, it's its a forever battle, right? Because people you could pay 10 bucks an hour or two to wash dishes now want 12 bucks. The pizza cooks who wanted 12 now want 15. So it's you're constantly having to fight that battle where if you're paying someone too much, it's not worth paying them but at the same time, you need people. So what we found works really well. And again, it's one of those cliche things because it works, but find the good people, find out who they are and give them the best possible working situation. So we have cooks who have been with us and we give them one or two weeks paid vacation a year because where can they go and get paid vacation as an hourly cook? So you find those people. And another good one is if you have a franchise, we're starting to look into this as well, include a 401k. So include the things that are intangible to people where they can't just go somewhere else and grab that. They may be able to get more money, but they're losing it. Especially for us, we're a family business. My dad is actively involved in the sense that he goes around to stores and people see him, right? He's not a hands-off person. So people know, okay, Michelle comes around, Leslie come around. They see them. There's a good sense about them. People want to work with us because they know my parents have been doing this for 20 years I'm coming up. I'm doing it as well. So it's not a corporate drone where it's like, you have to do this. Do we have a board of directors we have to report to? It's, oh, I'm going to let Michelle down. I'm going to let Nick down. You're adding that personal element touch to it where we go above and beyond to help people. And they inadvertently never want to let us down. So that's kind of the benefit if you have a ownership group where you're very hands-on. Yeah, definitely. I just think some connection with, with the, the people at the top is critical. You know, really kind of align the mission from top to bottom and without it. And I know this from being an employee, if you don't see the owner and the person at the top, 
a lot of employees can kind of start whispering and, and you villainize because you just don't see them. And that's where you feel like you're just a cog in the wheel working for the man. You know, you're just meeting the system. And uh, yeah, but if you see a face, exactly, you need a face and it just it personalizes everything. Everyone who's involved in restaurants to some degree have some level of hospitality because there wouldn't be the restaurant business without it. So if you are the top dog or one of the top dogs and you go around, it speaks volumes because people get to meet you, get to see who you are, understand you. So there, it's not just, oh, Nick told me to do this. It's, oh, I know why. Because if you don't do this, then this one, you explain to them, right? And yes. if you explain to your, your your managers, then they, I'm hoping, will be able to explain to their staff, here, here's why we're, it's not just do this, it's here's why we're doing it. But it has to come from the top down. Most employees, right? If you tell them why something has to be done, how yeah. it helps so the much business, more chance, which in turn helps them. It's most people are understanding and and yeah. why, right? Like you know, they're people doing just want a why, right? If you explain to someone the why behind it, they're like, oh, that makes sense. And not saying everyone will do it. That's wishful thinking, but a much larger percentage of people would do it. Just being explained why versus do it. Definitely, definitely. All right. Well. Let's uh, I'll wrap up here with one final question just for someone starting in franchising. You know, what would be the best piece of advice you could give them if they're heading into ownership? I touched on it before, but you really want to make sure your brand equity is strong in everything because you're putting in your substantial, not just your, your money, but you're putting in your time, man. You're building something. And if you are with something that you think you can grow with, you want to stay with that. You you want to be so careful, like spend months, years finding that right franchise because that will make or break everything. Don't be swindled by people with these saying, you can do 3 million a year from this like little deli, kind of really talk to the people in the, in the space, right? If anyone talks to me from El Mushroom, I'll tell them the truth. I love it. It's a good brand, strong brand. It's been around. Don't let people swindle you by making these crazy claims. You can make your money back in three years, make your money back in six months, like, those are a dime a dozen, right? But finding the right brand to partner with, because for, for us, and I think most people should do the same, you want to build a long-term game here because long-term games with long-term people is how you create wealth. So if, you, if you're going to stick with the same brand, you want to make sure the brand is strong. Definitely, man. I tweeted this one time. It was half, I was half joking, um, but it was just like franchise 101 or how to, how to be a successful franchise owner. And it was just a pie chart with two colors. And was, <laughs> I've seen it. <laughs> yeah, it was like pick the right brand, and then there was a little slip. Pick the right, brand, the right brand, but yeah, exactly, man. I mean, that's uh, that, because that's the game. It's just so important, you know. I mean, that that <laughs> makes all the difference on on where you go. And in oh, your and uh, one more thing, I'll also say is don't go for fad franchises. Well, we're, we're talking about like fr- like frozen yogurt correct. and that whole craze. Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> yeah. want to name names, but correct, yeah. No, definitely. I mean, you know, I guess for people out there, in a way, franchises almost remind me of the way like stock markets can move yeah. where certain se- sectors just go through hype cycles. You it know, gets like hot, right? Re- Everyone wants Cannabis it. has been hot lately and, and like psychedelic stocks have been hot. Um, there's just certain segments of franchises that blow up and it becomes way too oversaturated. And then there's a reconsolidation and closing down. Of, and then what, of what people don't, don't realize is when you sign a lease, right? You're on the hook for 10 years, five years, yes. 15 years. When you sign a franchise agreement, you're on the hook for five, 10, 15 years. So if you get, if, let's say you peaked right when frozen yogurt was going crazy, all of a sudden now it drops. You still have your franchise, you still have your fees to pay, you still have your rent to pay. There's a yep. lot of fixed expenses 
that people in euphoria and the mania stages, they just forget about. They conveniently gloss over it. Yeah, I mean, you really you, you got to look at the micro, which is the brand, the unit economics of of the business. But then the macro, as you just said, is important, right? The it, longevity it's just a, of the culture of it. Yeah, the culture, the concept. You know, I mean, you guys with pizza, pizza's never <laughs> going away. You guys are good there. So that was an easy one on the macro. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, man, that's that's great advice. Well, uh, look, this has been an awesome conversation, man. Likewise, uh, I man. think people Thank are really you. gonna. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm happy to happy to always have any uh, any franchise owners are always welcome on the pod. Yeah. So um, where can uh, folks find you on the internet if they want to learn from you, yeah. hit you up, ask questions? I mostly just uh, started getting more active on my Twitter, which is at Nick underscore Panos one. Um, okay. And one thing I'm kind of been I've been toying with is showing people exactly what I've done in the catering space because it's worked so well. But also, <laughs> I don't know if I want to do that because it's worked so well. So I've just been going back and forth with kind of tweeting out exactly what I've done and just helping people who kind of want to learn the direct marketing side of catering, which has just worked so well for us. Yeah, yeah, no, sure. I mean, it's, uh, I, I love that. I think that's super interesting facet of this conversation. It's, it's just how you've generated B2B. Yeah, that's a game changer. It is, it really is. You can make so much money in that combined with everything. I want people to realize this really is a path to a great lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, it's awesome. And I think that playbook would be helpful. I, I do see why you're cautioning a bit. <laughs> to giving <laughs> because it to if, everyone. if everyone's doing it, then it won't be as powerful. But I think there's, I think that the US is so large that people can do it and you'll never see done again. So it's one of those things where if, if people are interested, I'll actually consider putting something out because it's all by, <laughs> by trial and error that I've done it. I've sent out hundreds of emails. I've dressed up in crazy costumes. I've done, I've done crazy things, but I've been remembered. I've been recommended. I've been referred. I've been yeah. like, it, it's just, it's just work. Like one of the best things I've ever done. I, I think ideas are a dime a dozen. Execution yeah. is that's so right. hard. Correct. So that's why there's so many people. I mean, it, the, there's so many free courses and guides on how to do things, but most people aren't ultra successful. And that's because the execution is, it takes work, takes time, and it's difficult. And it takes courage. Like It does. Me, dressing up in a Santa costume, it's pretty hard to do that, man. Walking into <laughs> an office. I don't know if I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it takes yeah. time because you know you'll be the center of attention. So yeah. Yeah, it's a specific it's personality that can it handle it. It works. I'll tell you that. It, it works. I love that. Uh, <laughs> all right, Nick. Well, th- this has been fun, man. Absolutely. Thanks again for coming on and uh, we'll, we'll talk soon. Hopefully this helps people out there looking for franchises. Definitely, man. All right, thanks, man. Bye. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. Listen.